silent green is people! No. I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to this Slate spoiler special on Spider-Man Far From Home. Spider-Man Far From Home picks up after the events of Avengers Endgame, with the half of the world's population that was snapped into oblivion restored after a five-year gap. That includes Peter Parker and most of the notable members of his Queens High School class, who are gearing up for a class trip to Europe. Peter tries to leave his Spidey suit behind, but trouble naturally follows him in the form of giant creatures called Elementals, who are trying to consume the Earth whole. Betting on Spidey's team are Nick Fury and Quentin Beck, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who introduces himself as a visitor from another dimension where the Earth has already been destroyed by the Elementals. Mysterio, as he's eventually dubbed, says he wants to prevent the same thing that happened to his Earth from happening to ours. But things start to not add up. And this is the point where I remind you that this is a spoiler special and we're going to spoil the entire plot of the movie. Joining me to do that are Ingu Kang, who's a staff writer at Slate. Hello, Ingu. Hello, hello. And Alex Barash, who is a podcast producer at Slate. Hello. Okay. Um, let's sort of state our uh, MCU bona fides here. How closely or not have you followed the Marvel Cinematic Universe TM? I just had to pay <laughs> Kevin Feige $20 to say that. Um, <laughs> where were you with this whole thing, uh, Alex? Uh, I've followed it pretty closely. I was... 12 when the first Iron Man came out so I was sort of the prime demographic for the MCU for a while. I was you know, following it very closely as a teen and then sort of became fatigued or disillusioned after a certain point. But I have seen all of the films and uh, have sort of come back around to them with the more recent installments like Black Panther was great and I was pretty fond of Endgame and I actually really enjoyed this. So, uh, Ingu, where do you stand on this whole thing? I am a critic so I guess I am an unwilling kidnap victim in like the <laughs> MCU industrial complex. I've seen probably about two-thirds of the MCU movies. They're pretty good. I think I would say like about the average like film goer who's watching superhero movies. Um, yeah, and, and for myself, I am uh, an old enough person. I don't even want to think about how old I was when the first uh, one of these came out. But I, I'm, <laughs> I'm old enough to remember I bought like pre-opening weekend tickets through my comic book store to see the first Batman movie, like when I was a teenager. That was like such an exciting thing. And so like to watch how much that context has has changed in the last 30 years when that was like, oh my God, like our subculture is finally being validated to now. It's like no longer subculture, but sort of super culture that has just like consumed everything in its wake. Yeah. Um, like the kind of thing the Avengers would be called upon to stop. Um, <laughs> Uh, it is uh, kind of fascinating and daunting. I have seen, uh, I guess, 22 and a half of these movies because I walked in in the middle of the Dark World, the Thor movie, and have never uh, found any reason to go back and see the first half of it. You didn't miss much. And I kind, of enjoy, <laughs> I kind of enjoy having that little asterisk by it, to be honest. Um, but yeah, so this is the 23rd movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, which Spider-Man, after having been kind of on his own because the rights to the Marvel characters, for those who don't know, have been parceled out among various um, of the giant entertainment conglomerates, um, which are steadily also consuming each other. Um, and after the last attempt at a Spider-Man series, um, The Amazing Spider-Man with uh, Andrew Garfield in the role, Sony did two of those movies. They didn't really work out, especially the second one. So they kind of brokered a, a 
peace with uh, Marvel or, you know, many large checks changed hands to move the character into the. I think he's still a Sony property, but he's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe somehow because this um, movie still has uh, Amy Pascal, the former head of Sony, still has a, a production credit on this one. Um, but he's officially part of the MCU now. Um, he's been in you know, numerous other movies than this one, including Civil War and Endgame. This is the 23rd movie, as I said, in this series. And it's kind of the end, not only the end of what they call phase three, but it really feels like the end of a much larger arc. Um, Endgame was, this is the one right before this. I doubt if you're listening to this podcast, you don't know that. But um, <laughs> Avengers Endgame was the one before this. And that is the only mover movie in the history of the MCU to not have a post credit scene. These movies have trained us from the first Iron Man when Nick Fury sends up, uh, turns up in the end credits and asks Tony Stark if he wants to join the Avengers. Um, they've trained us to sit and, you know, like to sit and wait through 15 minutes of uh, visual effects artist names to get some hint about what's coming next. And because none of the movies in this next phase have been officially announced, there are a couple like Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and uh, The Eternals and, and a Black Panther sequel that have been you know more or less confirmed, but there are no dates, there are no plots. Nothing is really kind of set in stone yet. And that's the first time that's, that's, that's happened. They're always kind of teasing the next thing. So this is really sort of the end of the first, you know, like season. It's kind of perfect that this has basically 23 episodes, which is the same length as, I guess, sort of now an old-fashioned season of TV. But this is really, in a lot of ways, this movie is kind of a coda to Avengers Endgame that was mm-hmm. a, you know, big, you know, three hour, like major characters die. Um, The universe is destroyed and then brought back and then almost destroyed again. And then this is kind of an aftermath movie. And you think that means it's going to start, it's got to start in a pretty dark place. But this movie kind of immediately uh, wrong foots you. There's a little, you know, pre-credit scene, which basically involving the, the character Mysterio, who I mentioned in Nick Fury and, and Maria Hill, played by Kobe Smulders. And that basically is just there to assure you that eventually things are going to get smashed and be very loud. Uh, so the movie kind of wrong foots you like right from the beginning. So it gets you this you know opening scene that assures you that everything's going to get loud at some point and things will be smashed and blow up. And then you get the opening Marvel logo. And the first thing we hear is Whitney Houston's <laughs> I Will Always Love You. And the, the audience at my screening just immediately cracked up. And then you get this very cheesy sort of in memoriam video complete with like you know star wipes and the comic sans font um like stock that, photos of candles and doves and yes things. yeah that, and there's a getty images watermark yeah. joke which i mean <laughs> i don't know that killed at the press screening i don't know how it's <laughs> going to do with regular audiences but um and this is the students of midtown high which is peter parker's high school in queens they're kind of sort of memorializing the people who in fact did not die and what they're now we learn they're now calling the blip the simple version of this is basically half the population of the entire universe, including the Earth, um, half of every living thing was snapped out of existence by Thanos for reasons that you can go back and watch the Avengers Endgame movie if you want to know. Um, and they were gone for five years and then they came back. Um, so everything was restored kind of as it was, except now half of the world is five years older than the people that they used to be the same age as. Um, and this would see, you know, for a movie that is very specifically on people who were like all in the same grade in a certain high school, would seem to present like a pretty huge like logistical problem, yeah. among other things. But they've conveniently all the sort of, you know, characters you remember from the previous uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, which was the first Tom Holland MCU Spider-Man movie, they all they all seem to have gotten blipped. I will say that Brad, who is one of his classmates, who was 15 or 16 in the first film, did age five years and is still in their class. And 
everyone finds that a bit weird, but also like he got hot and he's 21 and all of the girls are sort of fawning over him. But that, to me, created a really weird dynamic with MJ because he's still interested in her, but she's a teenager and he's decidedly not at this point. So the sort of skating around that was a little bit weird to me. But it is interesting to see them trying to pick up the pieces generally and just carry on with life as it was. Because I think that's the part of Endgame that was the most appealing, sort of seeing how the normal people are trying to make their world work. And I liked seeing more of that. But But is that what happened with him or do they have the... uh, I thought when they they did like the little dissolve in that opening montage so that he was like... He's one of the people, he didn't get blipped, but he used to be five, five years younger than them, and now he's the same age. I thought that was how that... No, he's oh, really? 21. They, okay. Yeah. Wow, this is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so this is... But he's still a, a high school student, I guess. But that, that is really weird. Like, I don't, I don't understand why he didn't continue in school. So, I mean, w- one of the things that is in- interesting about this particular version of the Spider-Man story, I mean, this is the third... Spider-Man we've gotten in the 21st century. We have this sort of, you know, Sam Raimi, um, Tobey Maguire cycle, which, you know, for for my mind is really, those very much felt like the first comic book movies that really felt like comic books. Like, I feel like Sam Raimi was the first director to really just kind of nail that that tonal balance. Mm-hmm. We had three of those, um, ending with Spider-Man going emo and, uh, <laughs> you know, joining the killers. And then you had the two Andrew Garfield movies, and now they've started over again. And this feels to me both kind of the most aggressively teenage and the most sort of pointedly aimed at a younger audience. I mean, this feels like, you know, they're really gunning for, um, I guess, younger millennials and even like Gen Z with this movie. Um, what do you, I mean, what do you guys think about this version of Spider-Man compared to the other ones? I really love this. I think that what this movie is trying to do is sort of uh, show you that Peter Parker is still a teenager and essentially like the reason why he... I mean, we'll get to this, but there's a point at which he sort of forgets that, like, with great power comes great responsibility. And so he sort of abdicates a little bit of his responsibility because he's uh, pursuing MJ, uh, who is played by Zendaya in this movie. And the fact that he just sort of wants to be a normal teen once in a while sort of was, like, weirdly touching. And I think if it was, like, a grown man, I would say, what are you doing? Like, you have a job to do. Go do your job. But all he wants is sort of like a summer vacation in Europe with his high school classmates. And that part really got to me. And I thought they balanced that whole like, I have teenage coming of age rituals that I want to get through, but also have this like, like really surreal, like weight of the world responsibility that I also have to somehow balance that with. I thought that that part was like one of the best parts of the movie. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, The thing about Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man is that you don't believe for a second that he's a teenager. You know, he just never carried that off. And I feel like Tom Holland has that sensibility down, as do a lot of his classmates. Like, Zendaya is so good in this, and I really like the specificity and weirdness of her character. Like, she's kind of a murderino. She's really into true crime and sort of conspiracy theories and stuff. And that just feels like... they're They're not playing with archetypes of high school students it's like this is an act i believe that this kid exists and believes the things that she does and i liked that yeah, about she's her just like a teenage girl who's really into like serial killers just like a bunch <laughs> right. of other girls i don't know who might be a good example in this podcast that we're listening to was also obsessed <laughs> with serial killers when she was a teenager 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, one of the things I was thinking about with this, I mean, this is a kind of coming of age movie on two different levels. You have one, um, the kind of main idea is like, who's going to be the next Iron Man? Like Tony mm. Stark, we're spoiling Avengers Endgame, as I told you, Tony Stark is dead. Now the world is looking for the next Iron Man. And while there might seem to be better choices for this, Tony's personal choice is Peter Parker, who is mm-hmm. still a 16 year old. Um, and Peter does not really want to take on this kind of very adult Mantle. So there's that aspect. And then there's also the aspect of Peter is like going on a school trip and he's got a crush on MJ and he wants to tell her that and maybe have it's, you know, maybe not his first kiss, but it kind of like plays out that way. Um, and one thing I really like about this movie is, you know, Mary Jane and and I think when Stacey do in the movies has always been and in the comics has just been this, you know, she's this, you know, incredible, like gorgeous, perfect, like redhead mm-hmm. that Peter just kind of stares at from afar and eventually gets up the nerve to, to talk to because he's kind of the awkward nerd. It's like science nerd with glasses. Um, Zendaya's MJ is a, a weird and as awkward and uncomfortable with this whole thing as he is. I mean, she is, yeah, she's very into like online conspiracy theories. When they find out there's, you know, going to Europe, she's like, be sure to put a VPN on your phone so that the government can't track you. Yeah. Um, you know, she's very into, yeah, sort of like tinfoil hat online stuff. And it, like she's a, and she's a real character that way. She's not just like, you know, kind of the girl who like turns her head in slow motion as like a song cranks up on the soundtrack. And I think that's like a really significant and uh, like interesting uh, bit of progress there. And I think if you see someone like Kirsten Dunst, Mary Jane, she sort of had like that sass about her. And I, I like the sass, but I also liked about Zendaya's MJ that like, she's not even really sassy. She's just like surly. Like I was really reminded of Daria, and also a little bit of that Emily the Strange like hot topic vibe. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was really nice to have sort of like that type of like dark spirited girl as the love interest for once. Right. I mean, there's a bit where, um, and of course, the you know the class trip, they end up sort of you know like going to the opera, and they all put on their best clothes. And um, Peter says, "MJ, oh, you know, oh, you know, you look really pretty." And and she goes back. She goes, "Oh, so now I have value." And then she just, <laughs> and then she just sits there and wait for him to stammer and try to. And she's like, "No, I'm just fucking with you." Yeah. But um, but she you know is causing him, and it's like I mean, it's flirtatious in the way that she's like messing with him and causing him discomfort, but also, but it's, you know, but she is also flirting with him, but in a way that just feels like very true to that character. True to teenagers too, right? Because like, it's a sort of like inept kind of flirting, which also (laughs) adds uh, to like the teenage feel of all of this. Right. I mean, this is, you know, this is typical of, I mean, basically every movie made about teenagers in Hollywood, including, you know, Booksmart recently. I mean, all these actors are, some are in their 20s, I think Angry Rice, who plays Betty, is uh, like actually 18 in this, but all the other ones, mm-hmm. like Tom Holland's 23. So they're all somewhere in their 20s, but they do have, uh, I guess, for, what for lack of a better term, you might call that sort of teenage energy. Like yeah. they're very frantic. Uh, you know, it also feels very, there's a part of this movie, it, you know, it's very funny. I think like the last one, it's, you know, very much trying for like the humor side of things. There is a part of this movie that feels very like carbon dated 2019 mm-hmm. in its sense of humor. There is a lot of... Let's have like 10 people all say like a line within a few seconds of each other. And some of them will sort of be jokes and they'll all be said so close together that you will f- get the impression that something really funny has been said, like whether or not it has. There's a lot of that like back and forth patter that doesn't quite like have the sharpness that it should. And that I found like a little wearying over two hours and, and 10 minutes. But there are a lot of great jokes in it too. Those I actually don't want to 
spoil in here, but there's some really there's some, like good jokes about social media, which are mm-hmm. very hard for movies to pull off now. The Tony Stark, of course, is dead, so he cannot communicate even in a comic book movie with Peter Parker. But he, the way he lets him know that he has been chosen as his successor is uh, Peter gets this kind of mysterious package, and he opens it up, and it's a set of you know, kind of those like oversized sunglasses that like over only Robert Downey Jr. can pull off. <laughs> and it is explained that this is like in the tradition of Jarvis. This is a, a sort of AI called Edith. Yes. Um, which, which stands for even dead, I'm the hero. Yes. So <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. still gets one of the best lines in the movie, even though he's not in it. Um, yeah. So and, and I he, mean, he's kind of in it, right? He, like, like see him. Yeah, there's a couple like flashbacks of the kind yeah. that he probably didn't have to be paid for. Right. And um, we, we see a lot of I mean, you know, we see murals of him when yeah. when Peter's on the airplane and he's like surfing the films that are available. There's a documentary about Iron Man called Heart of Iron or something. It's just like he is constantly <laughs> inundated with these images of his former mentor in a way that is interesting and becomes relevant to the plot. But Right. Well, and and it seemed very accurate about this kind of you know, public like grieving processing, uh, you know, process that that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, that of course you go on the airline, and yeah, the you just look through the in-flight movies, and there's like I think there's like two or three movies about the blip, and 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 Peter ha- has his own like very personal reaction to this. Like he mm-hmm. was there when Tony Stark died. Tony Stark was kind of like a surrogate father to him. Peter feels we eventually find out sort of responsible for for Tony's death, just having been present. And like if I'd yeah. done something different, maybe he'd still be alive. But there's nobody he can talk. To about that, none of the none of the Avengers who are still alive are around in this movie. It's not really explained why, but there's there's no there's a support group in in Endgame for people who are survivors, <laughs> but there's no uh, Avengers support group for people who are still dealing with that particular trauma. But so anyway, so he has this this Edith. He is he is given control of Edith, which turns out to be it's kind of a gateway to Tony Stark's entire global network of uh, like surveillance. And uh, drones and this this huge, like, vast, almost unlimited web of, of, uh, of power that he's handed over to the 16-year-old. The first thing he does, there's a whole little kind of comic plot where, like, Peter runs into this uh, sort of undercover operative who has made him a replacement Spidey suit since he didn't bring his with him. And she immediately tells him to, like, take off your clothes. And, and while he's doing that, he gets kind of caught half undressed by Brad, who himself has designs on MJ. So Brad, turns out not a very nice guy, um, snaps a picture of him and is going to immediately text it or show it to MJ and and ruin Peter's chances with her. So Peter decides to deploy this, uh, you know, sort of, you know, black ops uh, surveillance net to like mess with Brad's phone. And he accidentally calls in a drone strike on him. And uh, of course, nothing more hilarious than a good drone strike bit. Um, And so, yeah, so this drone ends up like, you know, shooting missiles, not quite blowing up the bus that they're all on, but it is this very weird thing, especially in the context of the Iron Move, the Iron Man movies being semi-seriously kind of wrestling with this whole legacy of Tony having been this major like arms contractor who mm. has sold weapons to some very bad, you know, at least that have ended up in the hands of some very bad people all over the world and becoming Iron Man to um, sort of offset that somehow. And then he's just like, well, what if I gave uh, the control of all this stuff to a high school student? How would that be? How did that moment like play for you guys? Yeah, I mean, I I like the jokey tone of this film overall, and I think it works, and I think it's good the way that it sort of wears its su- superhero filmness lightly. But I did sort of want a more serious reckoning with Tony Stark's legacy. Like he's been lionized in universe in this way, but he is a really complicated figure, and not, you know, like obviously 
first and foremost because he starts as an arms dealer, but then even as Iron Man, he makes some really dubious choices and, you know, puts people in harm's way by thinking that he knows best. And this doesn't really... I mean, both, yeah, both Avengers Age of Ultron and Captain America Civil War are kind of like hinge on Tony making these very kind of questionable, like egomaniacal decisions. Right. And then this film sort of forgets like i know that that sort of happens when a person a public figure dies and then gets sort of whitewashed or lionized in that way but i wish that there had been more of a reckoning around like maybe tony wasn't making great choices all of the time like the idea that because he's the one who chose peter that was automatically the right choice doesn't really get interrogated and i wish that it had been but the whole brad subplot is a little bit weird to me as i said partly because of the age gap between him and nj but i don't know that this was like the best bit of the film to me but i don't know i mean i guess the drone bit is necessary because it gets us to it's like one of the big reasons why peter decides eventually that he would rather not have edith right it's yeah. too much too much for him to handle yeah. yeah so that brings us to um the the character of mysterio or quentin beck played by jake gyllenhaal I said at the beginning of the podcast, and I phrased it very carefully to say that he introduces himself as a character, as a person from another dimension. We find out, and it's why it's great that we're doing a spoiler special, because I had to write an entire review not discussing the second half of the movie. We find out that Quentin is a, what's the word, a liar. Um, yeah, so he comes up, so he comes up with this, this you know, incredibly sort of absurd backstory about like, oh, actually, I'm from like Earth 818, and this is Earth 663, and my Earth was consumed by these you know, uh, fire and water elementals who, you know, if they get big enough, they take their energy from the Earth's core and they consume everything. And so he has these they, a couple of very big battles um, in Europe, one in, in Venice with the water from the canals, um, another in, is it Berlin? Yes. Yes, another in, in Berlin with a fire elemental and uh, Mysterio who's basically got kind of like a, you know, f- fishbowl on his head and a big green cape is flying around and, you know, blasts these things to pieces eventually it seems for a moment has sort of sacrificed his own life to do this. It turns out that this is all a scam by a disgruntled former employee of Stark Industries to get Peter to hand over the set of glasses to him. But the character is also you know, presented at first, I think, very deliberately as a kind of stand-in for Tony Stark. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, he has the same sort of you know, snarky wit. He's got the kind of same scruffly facial hair. And so, and I feel like that's a lot of what Jake Gyllenhaal is doing in the first half of the movie is kind of doing a riff on, on Tony Stark. And, and then he becomes kind of a negative mirror of him. He's someone who has, who has access to the same technology and, you know, roughly the same degree of mastery for it. But all he is really interested in doing is making himself a hero. I actually, I mean, one of the other things I really liked about this movie is that a lot of it seemed like self-parody of the superhero Mm -hmm. genre. And one of the things I really enjoyed in retrospect about the scene when we are introduced to Mysterio and the elementals is that a lot of the action is really chaotic and a lot of stuff that uh, Mysterio says or pronounces really is really more gibberishy than usual for superhero movies. And it really sort of seemed like they were having fun, sort of making fun of the absurdities of superhero movies. And I really enjoyed that, especially when it became clear that Mysterio, like everything that Mysterio said was bullshit. And so it was sort of this like, just a little bit more than like what we actually get, like satire to point out like these 
silliness of like a lot of the superhero genre. And I thought they pulled that off really well because it's like believable enough to Peter, but also it like sounds just a little bit too tenured to us for it to be super believable. Yeah, I mean, the moment when we first see Quentin Beck as he is, there's this sort of um, they have a he has a you know they have a drink together. Peters is non-alcoholic because he's still uh, technically sixteen. Um, they have a drink together in this in this bar, and Peter decides to hand over the glasses to him and walks out the door. And then you know Quentin sort of turns off the hologram that's been working in there, and he's revealed. To, you know, as his true self, and it turns out he's been wearing all along this kind of gray bodysuit that basically looks like a motion capture suit. Like right. if you've seen footage of Tom Holland on the set of Avengers Endgame, which is basically like, you know, a couple green painted rocks in a studio <laughs> in Atlanta somewhere. I mean, that's it's basically what he's wearing. I mean, it's kind of an amazing aspect of these movies now that even things that seem like they'd be real, like Spider-Man's suit. Are, are CG. Yeah. And there are, you know, there are whole sequences in this movie, of course, where you're just like nothing like involved in the scene, like ever went in front of a camera, like the whole, you know, battle scenes, like Tom Holland didn't even shoot any of those, you know, it's just all this, the Spider-Man's completely computer generated. And it's just a weird thing to think of sometimes. And it really, the kind of dichotomy between their civilian identity and their superhero persona is even more pronounced now because they're like literally not even, the, the actors like literally not even on screen when the scenes are, are taking place. Yeah, that's that scene in the bar is really the the key turning point I think for me at which I started to enjoy the film. Like the the final confrontation with the fire elemental in Prague, I think it is, felt really anticlimactic to me. Like you think that Mysterio is sacrificing himself, but 30 seconds later he gets up and he's fine and it was like is that the big battle? Like I just right. lo- you It's know. another great parody of the superhero genre. Right, exactly. Like- yeah, Demo, it, but actually everyone's fine. Yeah. And I, I was so underwhelmed by that. And then they have this conversation in the bar and then the hologram goes away and he gets to have his big villainous monologue. And then it's like, oh, this is where we're going and this is really fun and I'm on board for this. Like he's just relishing in being this over-the-top character. If I can push back a little bit, what I really liked about the Jake Gyllenhaal character is that at the beginning of his ability or like what we discovered to be his ability. He's not actually all that over the top. Like he's basically, as soon as Peter hands over Tony Stark's sunglasses, he exits the bar and then you see all of the illusion tech, is what they call it, like disappear. And then you sort of see like this like more warehousey version of what the bar was. Mm-hmm. And then you basically see that like a lot of the extras in that scene were holograms, but a bunch of them were just like office workers who were also disgruntled and they're also sort of ex-employees of Stark Industries. And they all have a chip on their shoulder and they basically like celebrate, but like they celebrate in this like really dorky office way yeah. where they're like, hooray, like we're <laughs> so great. And just like the mundanity of that was really charming. Yeah, it's There's a really a- fun uh, ex- like expository monologue that he does where there are clips from Iron Man 1 and from Captain America Civil War where we see it's almost like how in Endgame they go back to scenes from previous films and recontextualize them. But in this case, it's showing moments where Tony was dismissive of technology or where people were you know, yelling at workers to recreate something Tony had done. And you realize that, you know, this is this person's life's work and he's dismissed them or denigrated them or, you know, messed them up in some way. And you see how Tony's lone genius bravado was actually underpinned by these other people's contributions. And 
why they might have these resentments of him. Right. I mean, you get this kind of these kind of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, like flashbacks to the previous movies where people and I think they got the actors back. But, it, or you know, in some in Jake Gyllenhaal's case, they went back and kind of added him to old footage. But mm-hmm. basically, you know, the guy that like, you know, Tony Stark is like yelling at because he brought him the wrong box of parts or Obadiah Stane is yelling at in, in, in the Iron Man movies. Yeah. Like just these day players that basically came in to get yelled at by a movie star. They've, you know, been hanging out in the background for like 20 movies since then, just waiting for their moment to strike. And Quentin Beck is finally giving, you know, them like the revenge of the little guy. And these are the people who actually know how to run all the tech that Stark Industries did. And without Tony, I guess, to, to mind the store without anybody in charge, they're really pretty free to go rogue. Mm-hmm. And it does show you how terrifying that technology can be. I mean, the movie kind of you know, finesses that by the end. And I, I feel like, I mean, I've seen people kind of, I've seen people put forth the take that the the whole, all the Marvel movies, you know, like most big budget action movies are kind of sort of covert, like military industrial complex propaganda. Mm. Those people are going to really enjoy <laughs> this yeah. movie. It's a very rich text. I think the other thing that's so great about like that Jake Gyllenhaal reveal is that I feel like for the last 10 years or so, the narrative around his career has been about how he was pursuing mainstream stardom. And he did sort of like a superhero-y action movie with Prince of Persia, which was an adaptation of a video game. And that was sort of like, in many ways, the nadir of his career, or definitely sort of of critical approval. And so he went back to indies, and he has shown himself to be really fantastic as a like a slimy, villainous character, I think most especially in Nightcrawler. And so when you see him in this sort of like more milquetoast, add-a-boy sort of role at the beginning of this movie, you're like, oh, Jake Gyllenhaal is pursuing this mainstream stardom again. But when he reveals himself to be the villain, you almost get this repeat pattern of what we think of as like the trajectory of his career. And it just, like, added this, like, extra layer of, I don't know, like, metatextual deliciousness. At least for me. Because he's so much better as a villain than sort of, like, a straight-ahead, like, superhero guy. I mean, yeah, he's definitely... He's definitely enjoying the back and forth. I mean, he's basically doing this movie between, like, you know, doing Sondheim on Broadway, and then he's got, like, a, a one-man, like, monologue show coming up at the end of July um, in New York. So he's really, like, playing both ends. Um, I, I mean, the, his performance, I would, you know, be interested. I don't—I don't, I, I will probably not see this movie again until it comes out on streaming. But there are definitely aspects of this movie that are designed, I think, to play better or more richly on second watch, which mm-hmm. is, I think, not true of a lot of the Marvel movies. Another aspect of it, is the performance of Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury in this movie. You have to watch all the way to the end of the movie to, I guess, the the second of the post credit scenes. Yep. First one features a uh, cameo by J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson returning from basically all the, the previous movies, which uh, people in my theater were like, basically soiling themselves out of excitement. Uh, they were so, <laughs> yes. so thrilled by yes. that. Um, and then the post credit scene after that, you find out that Nick Fury and Maria Hill, all through the movie, have actually been two of the Skrulls, including Ben Mendelsohn's character from Captain Marvel, two of these shape-shifting aliens who have been acting as Nick Fury and Maria Hill during the entire movie while the real Nick Fury has been, like, hanging out on a Skrull ship in space somewhere. Right. And it's a, there are some moments in this movie where the, the, the writing for Nick Fury 
seemed really off. There's one point where Peter tries to tell him, Nick is saying like, hey, we need your help with this like, you know, major or like world threatening thing. And Peter's like, hey, I'm just a teenager. And Nick Fury says, bitch, please, you've been to space. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> Nick Fury doesn't say bitch, please. Like did the, the screeners like just watch Pulp Fiction or something. And and I had this discussion with a friend about this and they were like, well, that's because it's a bad Nick Fury imitation. It's like Nick Fury being imitated by someone who only knows Samuel L. Jackson from movies. Um, and I guess that's true if you watch all of the way to the second post credit scene, but I'm not sure like what the point of feeling like it's a bad version of Nick Fury for two hours and being like, actually, it was supposed to be bad at the end. Like, what the point of that is, I guess. Yeah, I just felt like that was a weird choice for the the end credit scene. Maybe I was more resentful because I've been waiting for 10 minutes to see what it was going to be, but it just felt like a a strange capstone for the film to end like i don't i don't know what the rationale was there and it didn't feel like enough of a a good enough joke to justify the bad screenwriting i don't know i don't know how much that exonerates the sort of slightly off nick theory that we see throughout the film but i think also it i mean inevitably it sort of becomes like a white man shape-shifting into a black man and then playing up like what he thinks is more blacker qualities and right. so, like, that adds, like, another layer of, like, oh, maybe this wasn't the best. Right. Yeah. One of the things that was frustrating about writing about this movie is, like, oh, you can't give away the big Mysterio twist. But I, I'm like, you don't even have to know the character from the comics. If you literally read the first sentence of the Wikipedia entry on mm-hmm. Mysterio, it's like, in the comics, the character Mysterio is, like, a, you know, failed special effects artist who uses his, you know, expertise to create illusions. So, you, I mean, you know just from that, that like, you know, there's going to be another shoot draft. Do you feel like, you know, for an hour, like you're watching this kind of slightly unsatisfying superhero movie and then they're like, well, it was supposed to be unsatisfying. Um, Did that redeem it for you? (laughs) I mean, I guess like the surprises were nice and maybe I'm grading this on the curve, but it's so hard to find surprises in superhero movies these days that I guess it was fine. It was like, oh, this is a sensation I haven't felt before. All right. That's not bad. And then I sort of moved on. I mean, I, I knew he was a supervillain right. in the comics, but I also knew that they had sort of reworked the character considerably for this. So I, I, I was open to it going either way. I, I wasn't going in like, oh, obviously he's going to be bad. But you do get the sense after a certain point. Like, we know the multiverse is real in the scheme of the MCU because that's how, or I guess at least in the scheme of Spider-Verse because that's how all of the Spider-Men converge. So I sort of bought that aspect of his backstory that he supplies where he says that he's from another Earth. Like we know that that's plausible in this universe. But there is a point at which it starts to kind of fall apart and the explanations he's giving feel a bit too tenuous. Right. And there were some of, I mean, some of the explanations that the Russo brothers who directed Endgame gave for... Because there's this whole like time heist aspect of yes, the movie where yeah. they're going back and retrieving things from the past, and then Captain America like leaves and goes and lives out his life. And they were saying, "Oh, actually, they went into like." Unfortunately, this is not in the movie because it's really stupid. <laughs> and the more they explained it, the worse it seemed. But they were like, "Well, yes. actually, those are splinter dimensions." And, this, and it's just like, "Okay, never. This is like this is just getting really, really silly." But but theoretically, if that's all you know, part of the behind the scenes work of Endgame. This is there's also a multiverse in this in this verse. But you mentioned it to the Spider-Verse and I think we do have to kind of compare these two. How do you how does this one stack up against that? I mean, I just think that Miles is such a great 
Spider-Man and I would be happy for him to enter into the MCU. And I really liked Spider-Verse. I mean, you mentioned how that original Spider-Man trilogy really captures the sensibility of comics. And I think that's even more true of Spider-Verse, as many people have said, both in terms of its aesthetic and in terms of its sensibility. So I would love to see more in that vein and to see more of Miles generally. But I also did really enjoy this film and I'm happy with what Tom Holland's doing with the character and sort of the tone that these films are striking. So Yeah, I loved Into the Spider-Verse and I really loved the elasticity of the idea of Spider-Man that that movie had. And I also loved the fact that it was able to do this kind of like race bending without making it like a big deal. And um, so I feel like I was worried that there was just like no way that this particular Spider-Man was going to be able to live up to the animated feature. But I feel like at the same time, this movie is so very much its own thing with its like own priorities about how to navigate grief and sort of like this idea that you have this like huge pressing thing like coming at you and also feeling like maybe you're not ready and sort of like this idea that like you want to escape from this like big thing that you have coming at you. I feel like it is so good at like what it does that by the I think midway point of the movie especially when you see the Jake Gyllenhaal reveal I was like okay I get what like you're trying to do with this movie and I am on board. I I I would be interested to hear what you guys thought about some of the things that Beck, Quentin Beck Mysterio says about superheroes and like his sort of central thesis is that people are hungry for a hero and you know will construct one if they need to and that reality and truth is subjective and can be manipulated and I feel like there was a lot of kind of fake news undercurrents in the film and I'd be curious to hear and I mean, I think his last line is like people will believe anything right right like, people are so desperate now that they'll believe anything right exactly like they just need someone to seize on and we see that in sort of the void that people are desperate to fill in the absence of Tony Stark but there are also lines like about BuzzFeed speculating wrongly about what the elementals are and, you know... Uh, right, well, and and the, the very end of the movie in that first um, post credit scene, you know, J. Jonah Jameson in this iteration is not the editor of, uh, fortunately for him, not the editor of a daily newspaper, which is a, a tough job to <laughs> hold down these days. Um, he is J. Jonah Jameson of the dailybugle.net. Yes. And he's basically kind of like an Alex Jones conspiracy theorist, but he sort of is in the recent video game too. And he is, and so he's still, you know, ranting about Spider-Man and he's got this fake video kind of cobbled together by one of, because um, Quentin Beck dies at the end of the movie, probably, maybe, wink, wink. But one of his assistants has gone and put together this fake video of Quentin Beck's dying words, telling the word that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. So that's kind of the culmination of that, straight of it being about like fake news. Mm-hmm. That, this, that kind of Alex Jones figure, J. Jonah Jameson, instead of running a newspaper, is now like kind of spreading crazy conspiracy theories on the web. In this case, one that happens to be semi-true. Quentin Beck also like blames Peter Parker for all the kind of drone-assisted damage that he did, which is not. But he is correct about who Peter Parker is. Yep. So one of the things that I have really enjoyed about like the latter Marvel movies is that there's this like alternate universe where the superheroes are this like new kind of celebrity, right? And I really like the sort of like weird little 
things that have been happening alongside that new creation of people, I guess, essentially. And so, like, you have these, like, jokes about how Hulk is going to pose for selfies with fans. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that I like about this movie is that it really gets into, like, this idea of how should we treat celebrities and, like, is it okay to out celebrities? Because mm -hmm. one of the things about the post credit sequence is that J. Jonah Jameson tells the world uh, that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. I just like the idea that, like, it's grappling with this idea because I feel like so many of, like, the superheroes that we know are sort of about, like, deception and a lack of transparency. And it's really theoretically interesting, at least, that these uh, new movies have these superheroes existing out in the wild and how their lives might change because of that. Right. I mean, that was interesting for me, too, because it kind of brings this, you know, the second movie in this Spider-Man cycle to essentially the same place that Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 ended, which was about sort of Peter, like, you know, one of the last shots in that movie is Peter with his, you know, his suit on, but his mask pulled up. And it's sort of, a you know, integrating the two halves of his personality. But in this case, it is, as you say, he's outed. It's kind of forced on him. And like, it's interesting to me, too, because these movies, kind of modern superhero movies, are generally speaking, like, they don't really care about civilian identities. Like, the, the you know, the, right. they don't Tony care. Tony Stark throws that out the window at the end of the first Iron Man. He yeah, just and, comes out and, in a press conference. And it was supposedly just like an improv or, or like something that Robert Downey Jr. just like kind of came up with on the set. It was like, hey, what if rather than, you know, like dragging this out for three movies, what if he just like kind of spontaneously said that? And so, yeah, so that... And and they like the Thor movies don't even bother with having him pretend to be you know Doctor Donald Blake or whatever they don't care about stuff like that, so it's you know the Spider Man movies you know and I think Spider Man stories in general are always like way more about Peter Parker than mm -hmm. they are about Spider Man so I, I think it's nice that even these ones have kind of held on to that but it kind of puts them in a different headspace than a lot of the other uh, Marvel movies as well and yeah it's it's noteworthy that M J actually figures out who he is. He has this sort of moment where he's going to confess his love to her, and she says instead, oh, you're here to tell me that you're Spider-Man, right? And, you know, throughout the film, he is sort of grappling with this. He says to Fury initially, I can't help you and I can't go to Berlin because my classmates will figure out that it's me. You know, they've already seen me save the day in DC, and if it happens again, that's too many coincidences. And his identity is important to him in the same way that these teenage rites of passage are important to him. Like, he wants to preserve his humanity in a way that other superheroes are not necessarily as invested in. And I, I like that the film cares about that and that he cares about that. Um, I think it's an interesting sort of driving tension for them. Right. And there's something kind of, you know, poignant or like profound in that condition of like being a teenager and feeling like everything you do is excruciatingly visible. I mean, mm -hmm. probably I'm sure even more so for, for teenagers now who, you know, are exposed to social media from such a young age. But at the same time, like nobody's really paying attention or you just certainly don't know when they are. I mean, most, you know, it's feeling like every time you mess up, someone's going to see it and you're going to be embarrassed, but also feeling like nobody's paying attention to you at the same time. And so the mm -hmm. idea that... And MJ kind of says, and he says, like, wait, were you watching me because you thought I was Spider-Man? Or, or, and she says, yes. And he's, and then, but then she later says, oh no, actually, I was watching you because I like you too. And it's, but it's like, all it took to figure out who he was was for someone to pay that close enough attention. Yeah. But of course, nobody watches a sixteen-year-old high school student that closely. Yeah. I don't know if he's as good-looking as Tom Holland. <laughs> so. I don't know how much there is to say about sort of the ending proper. I mean, there's a, a giant battle in London involving um, yet another sort of fake 
elemental Spider-Man ends up having to use what this movie refers to as his Peter Tingle, which is his, <laughs> his, 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 his refers to many. This movie did never met a joke that I did not like to repeat five times. So the Peter Tingle thing comes back. There's they a, really wanted to make that one work. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a pretty good runner about how in an effort to have him not be cut out, his kind of buddy and sidekick Ned, played by Jacob Batalon. Decide that this Spider-Man in this kind of made-up, uh, kind of ramshackle, like black ski mask costume is actually a, a European superhero called Night Monkey, which then gets repeated back in uh, English and Czech and German. So, big battle between you know Spider-Man and and Quentin Beck. Peter has to use his spider sense to kind of outwit these drones, which are creating these huge kind of holographic illusions. And the key thing that he learns is you have to go. He has to get inside the illusion. So there's this big you know, creature being created through all these holographic drones, which also do have like real weapons and do really blow things up. So mm-hmm. the destruction is real. It's just this, the source of it isn't. But he needs to kind of get inside this mesh of, uh, you know, illusion or fake news or whatever it is. And then from the inside, you can see what it is and then you can take it down. But you have to kind of break through the surface first. Right. And I thought it was interesting that Beck specifically says in order because his whole plot is that Nobody listens to the normal people and he needs to become a superhero in order to be heard and to have the sway that he thinks he deserves because he actually has the answers, but nobody cares because he's just a day-to-day scientist, whatever. And he specifically says, I need to create an Avengers level event and then stop it in order to be taken seriously. And this is that event that he's created. And I, I, I sort of like that genre savvy that he has on that sort of meta textual level, as Ingu was saying, where he knows what it takes to be seen as a hero, and he's trying to engineer that situation for himself. It's like a product rollout, right. you know, for, for Mysterio. It's yeah. it's very like Syndrome in The Incredibles, actually, yeah. is what I was thinking of. And he has some of that like kind of tech bro syndrome of like, yeah. uh, like Riz Ahmed's character in Venom as yes, well. He's yeah. kind of the new superhero villain du jour. And then and then he does then he has this big speech about how people will kind of people need heroes and people will believe everything. And that also kind of doubles as going back to what Ingu was talking about before, as a kind of commentary on super superhero movies. And for me, like the success, you know, particularly of of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's just like, look, people need this. If I don't fill the void, someone else is going to. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a weird thing, it's a weird argument for movies that are just so culturally dominant. Yeah. To make that like, well, we're just, you know, we're just like filling a void. If it wasn't us, it would be somebody else. And it's like, well, it, it wasn't anybody else for like the whole history of movies before 2008. Like you've created a new niche. So it's weird for them to kind of take this like humble, like, oh, we're just, you know, just doing what people want us to do. Right. Thing. I mean, it sort of feels like the Killmonger problem of like, he's actually making a good point about the cultural dominance of superheroes and how that's a bad and dangerous thing but then he takes it to such an extreme that he is the bad guy and we don't have to interrogate the idea further and like squint at it in that way but um i don't know because i feel like what he wants is basically like the fame and adulation without doing any of the work i think the movie could have made this point a lot stronger but the point is that once he gets edith and he has all of these drones on his side. What he could have done is actually done good. And what he could have done is like actually saved the world. Even if he had pilfered Tony Stark's technology away from, even if he had like tricked Peter Parker into giving away his work. And basically, instead of using that great power for good with like a sense of responsibility, what he does is just like create like an illusion of doing good. And 
again, I think like that speaks to sort of like what this like new form of celebrity could be. But unfortunately, the movie doesn't get too much into that. And I think that the way that Mysterio goes in, which is sort of like to have like the drones like attack uh, Peter and then the drones sort of say like, well, like we're too like close to you. So if we go after Peter, there's like a good chance that like it'll ricochet back onto you. And he says like, I don't care, like just go get him. And then of course, like a bullet ends up ricocheting him. And so, like, that's how, like, his journey ends. That I found a little bit disappointing. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the move where, like, the movie is, like, endeavor to have the villain be killed, but the hero doesn't have to kill them. That right. seems extremely, like, like sneaky and convenient to me. <laughs> right. And uh, to your point, Ingu, about Mysterio's intention, like, the way that he lays out his plan in the bar during that first toast slash expository scene it sounds as though he is intending to leverage this in order to do good. Like, he's just like, I just need to establish myself as a hero and then I can do the good work because people will listen. But he goes off the rails so profoundly and so quickly that we don't really get to see what that would have actually looked like. And, you know, it's evident that he never really felt that way or that, you know, the power has corrupted him or whatever. But I sort of wish that we had seen more of a reckoning with... Stark's approach to superheroism versus what an av- an everyday person, given that level of influence, might be able to achieve who had better ideals. But maybe- right, I mean, I, I think there is a part of this movie because it really does, you know, it is in some ways the first Marvel movie that actually feels like it has an ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, it, so it is. You know, there's a part of it's a very kind of you know silly, jokey high school movie on one level, and there's kind of this, this pensive undercurrent to it as mm. well um and you know maybe asking just for it to be a different kind of movie that it doesn't follow through on that more but i felt like it it brought that kind of stuff up just enough yeah that i was like okay well either just let me have either just let me have fun and have like spider-man like shoot things with webs or bring the stuff up and like and like get into it because some of the, i mean the stuff you were quoting mysterio saying before it's very it's kind of like ozymandias and watch yeah you know like it's you know and it's also Watchmen was 30 years ago. This is like all not a new idea anymore. But it is, those are like big ideas. And then the movie kind of punts on them right. at the end. And it, and I, I really thought there was a moment when after, you know, Spider-Man kind of kills, well, after he does, after Spider-Man doesn't kill Mysterio, but after <laughs> Mysterio is conveniently killed by his own hand, Spider-Man takes control of Edith again. And I really thought he was going to destroy the drone fleet at that point, like use the drones yeah. to kind of destroy each other and be like, you know what, actually this is like, I'm not ready for this power, but no one else is either. And I, and and that and that felt like the right story beat. Yeah. And you could just feel somebody Marvel going, yeah, but we might we might want to use the drones in another movie. So what if you don't kill them? And and that felt like a, like a real failure of nerve on the movie's part. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that ending moment feels sort of engineered toward that post-credit scene so that they can sort of retrofit it as, oh, it was all Spider-Man. Like, he has a line or Edith has a line where she's like, would you like me to execute the cancellation command or the safety command or something? And Peter says, yes, execute them all. And the way he phrased that, I thought that it was going to be like the drone misfire earlier in the film and it was just going to start raining down destruction. And then that didn't happen. I was like, oh, phew. But then later in the film, we see that clip being repurposed by the Daily Bugle to frame him as the villain. So I, I don't know. I just felt like the ending was sort of 
engineered toward that stinger and that taste of what comes next instead of going for what would have been a cleaner, more complete and perhaps better sort of final beat, as you were saying. So as I mentioned before, this movie constitutes the end of what Marvel has called phase three and really the end of kind of this first big 23 movie arc. And there's very little hint about what's next. I mean, you can maybe intuit from the final uh, post-credit scene in this movie, which, you know, shows Nick Fury on this scroll ship in space and the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, the, the, some of the movies that we know are coming or I think I think they've announced another Captain Marvel. They're definitely doing Guardians of the Galaxy and, and Eternals. Those are all kind of space-oriented things, and maybe that means that's what Phase 4 is going to be, but we really have no idea right now. Marvel has uncharacteristically been quiet about that. Um, Do you feel like this is a good place to to jump off the train? Are we all going to feel like we have to go and see whatever comes next March or May or whenever the next one of these things comes down the pike? I mean, it feels like such an epilogue to Avengers Endgame in a lot of ways that if you don't feel attached to a lot of these characters, and in my opinion, I don't understand why anyone would be, <laughs> then sure, like, it's, you got, like, a really nice coda to Tony Stark's death, and now you can move on. Yeah, this does feel like a, a natural end point in a lot of ways, and I like the way that we start to see Peter stepping up into that role. Like, there's a there's a moment when he is sort of taking up the mantle of Tony Stark in this very clear way and Happy is sort of looking on fondly. And I was uh, affected by that in a way I didn't necessarily expect to be. Just, like, you you can see sort of the next generation falling into place. And I am curious to see where this particular story goes, but I don't feel a compulsion or, like, a, I'm, I'm not desperate for the next film now. I feel like this is a nice, natural breaking point. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm interested to see what they do next, less because of that movie than because of some of the beats that Avengers Endgame ended on. There was, a, you know, there was this very, Inger, you wrote about this, I mean, there was this very contrived kind of girl power moment at the end of that <laughs> where it's just like, oh, what if all the female Avengers like lined them next to each other for no apparent reason? Um, but, you know, things like kind of passing the, the mantle of Captain America from Chris Evans to Anthony Mackie mm-hmm. and the prominence of Captain Marvel and that, you know, that movie felt really like okay, look, we've done, you know, this whole cycle built around these three sort of iconic, like, white male heroes played by Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth and Robert Downey Jr. And um, two of them are out of the picture now. It seems like Chris Hemsworth might turn up in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Who knows? But, yeah, those contracts ran out. Those characters have been put away. And, you know, it felt like they're saying, like, okay, now we're going to get we're going to really like complicate things now and, and yep. you know have a more you know, diverse lineup of actors and and, and you know go to different places and, and different planets and stuff like that and that that seems pretty interesting to me like one of my complaints about you know the MCU and and a lot of comic movies in general it's like comics are so much weirder than this yep. and more interesting and it's just i mean it's i understand that it costs more to put together a 200 million dollar superhero movie than it does to put out one issue of a comic book but there there's just so much more kind of like wackiness and freedom in those and that's something yep. like into the spider verse got really well and and yep. not only in one story but just also like Oh, look at all these different like, yeah, we can have like a cartoon pig and then like, you know, a black and white Spider-Man who, you know, talks like Nicolas Cage and, yeah. and whatever. And just embracing that 
diversity, not just of of you know race and gender, but also like tone and genre. Yeah, is like something that's really cool about comics. It's very hard to do in movies, and I I would you know I love to them for them to get a little bit crazier, and maybe that's what's happening next. I'm yeah, fingers I, crossed. I, I feel like that is where we're going, and they're starting to figure that out. Like Thor Ragnarok was a big hit for that reason, and this has some of that same spirit. So I, I hope that we are moving into that sort of zanier territory and also more diverse <laughs> casting. Aren't they doing that already on TV, though? Yes. Yeah, they yeah. do. Yeah, like, for sure. Like uh, like The Flash and like especially like Legends of Tomorrow and the CW and stuff like that have gotten really yeah. nuts and it would be nice for, for the movies to follow suit. Yeah. Thank you, Ingu, and thank you, Alex, for spoiling this movie with me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Uh, Danielle Hewitt is our producer and Kim and Drews is our engineer. I'm Sam Adams. Thanks for listening. <laughs>